Hey, welcome everyone. I'd like to welcome those at all of our campuses today. We're just pumped, we're excited that you've chosen to be with us in worship. We're in a series right now called uh, Boot Camp Basics. And what we're doing is not looking at every verse in the book of James, but we are highlighting some of those central lessons throughout each of the chapters. So for just six weeks, we're going to go back to basics. As I shared last week, I don't know what it was about the book of James, but when I was a brand new believer, I mean, just newly born into the family of God, somehow he drew me, the Spirit of God drew me to the book of James. It was the first book where I just, I wanted to drink every drop of it. And so by God's grace, I was able to just commit that to memory over a period of about six weeks. And it's been with me ever since. And every week, I rehearse it. Every week, I review it and, and meditate on some of these truths. And so the premise behind this series is that if you want to really get a great foundation, just the basics, like a soldier would get in boot camp, maybe there's no more practical place, at least to go, than the book of James. 54 different times in this little letter we call James, he says, do this, don't do that, watch out for this, be careful here. It's incredibly practical. And if we fail to get these lessons, we are going to really struggle in our progress in the Christian life. Now today, I'm calling this a wartime mentality because Scripture is crystal clear on this one truth. Whether you're a brand new believer, a longtime veteran of the faith, I would want everyone to really, really know this. We are engaged in battle. And we may not like that. We may go, yuck, I don't want to be a part of that. But we can't help it. There is a cosmic battle going on and the stakes are high. This is what scripture teaches. There are demons versus angels. There, are, there is God versus Satan. The bullets are real. The fiery darts come at us every day. This is a winner-take-all affair where the stakes are very high. And the forces of evil are arrayed against the forces of God. The losses are genuine and the rewards are eternal. So the, the goal of this sermon is simply to impress that on you. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, long time or brand new, I want us to all walk away today, hopefully, with a new appreciation for the battle we're in and what it looks like. But here's the bottom line. I would want you to walk away, not with a sense of dread about that, not with a sense of, oh my goodness, I'm going to be paranoid now. I want you to walk away with a sense of confidence, knowing that when you are in Jesus Christ, you are a winner. Now, you may struggle along the way. You may lose some battles, but the war is already won. And that is good news. When we're in Christ, we're already starting from a place of victory. And so it's exciting every day just to live in light of the victory that Jesus has already won for us at the cross and the empty tomb. Erwin Lutzer, 
who pastored in Chicago at Moody Memorial Church for years, wrote in his book called Personal Holiness in Times of Temptation, temptation is not a sin, it is a call to battle. And that is so true. And the way we experience this battle most commonly day by day is through a constant barrage of temptation. So I'm going to start here in chapter 1. Next week we'll be in chapter 2 and then we're going to move on to chapters 3 and 4. And again, just hitting some major lessons, things we would want to get in boot camp to be strong and courageous in battle. I'm starting here in verse 13 of chapter 1. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desires, he is dragged away and enticed. I love the bumper sticker that reads, lead me not into temptation, I can find it on my own. And we do, don't we? Every day, every day, I don't know about you, I am faced with temptation after temptation. Notice the words. By the way, when you're reading the Bible, when you're studying it, it's important to focus on the actual words and not just skim it. Notice it doesn't say, if you are tempted, because you will be. It says, when you are. It's just inevitable. And so James 1 verse 2 talked about the certainty of trials by saying when you face trials of various kinds. Here James says when you are tempted. Now I think it's important here as we're kicking this off to kind of distinguish between three different words. They're a bit different Although sometimes Christians, I think we, we use these almost as though they're interchangeable. The three words I'm talking about are trials, test, and temptations. Trials, test, and temptations. So let me give you a brief definition of these. And then we're going to focus mostly on temptations today. First of all, trials are difficult events that occurred naturally in life because we're living in a fallen, sinful world. There's a sense in which of these three categories, trials is the most general of the three categories. There are viruses in the air. There are bumps in the road. There are hurricanes in the weather. There are diseases that are rampant in the world. We're going to experience trials because we live in an imperfect world that has been deeply, and I mean deeply, marred by sin and the reper repercussions of sin throughout many, many generations. So that's a trial. A test is quite different. It's a difficulty that's deliberately sent or allowed, catch those words, a test is either deliberately sent or allowed by God to reveal the depth of our character and ultimately to bring out the best in us. And just like a teacher might give her students a test, she wants them to pass the test. She's for them. God is 
for us. If God sends or allows a test in your life today, please hear this part. He's for you. In a test, God's desire is never that we would fail the test. Just like a good teacher, he or she wants the students to thrive. They want to get the lesson. And God wants us to flourish into all he intended us to be. So God's purpose when he allows a test in our lives is that we mature and pass the test and be victorious and that our character be built. But what about that third word, temptation? A temptation is sent by Satan to bring out our worst. It's a deliberate, targeted enticement to sin. And Satan's purpose in a temptation is that we would disobey God and become weakened by that. His desire is to so trap us in sin that we would suffer defeat and ultimately death. Now, I know that's a lot to keep in mind, trials, tests, and temptations, but it's important we understand that they are different and that we we need to be careful which word we're using. I think there's an Old Testament story that kind of illustrates all three of these in one story. In the Old Testament, it talks about Naaman. He was a Syrian official, and he contracted leprosy. This horrible disease called leprosy. Now, I hope you understand, that was a trial in his life. He got it because he lived in a fallen world, marred by sin that was rampant with disease. He was exposed to this disease, and he wanted to get rid of it. He was horrified like anyone would be. So he'd heard about this prophet named Elisha, whom reportedly God had used to heal some people. So he went to Elijah and Elisha, and Elisha gave him this advice. Look, Naaman, go and dip seven times in the Jordan River, and you'll be made clean. You'll be over the disease. Now, that was a test. It was an opportunity for Naaman to do the right thing, to pass the test. But this was unpleasant and humiliating for him because the Jordan was a muddy river. And so he felt kind of humiliated by this test that he would have to go when in his own country, and he names rivers there, that were clean and crystal clear. But it was an examination of Naaman's faith, and it was a testimony of God's power at work in his life. But Naaman now is tempted to refuse. Satan, see, enticed him with pride, saying, you're too sophisticated for that. Don't make a fool of yourself, Naaman. And Naaman turned around and rode off in a huff. But then later, he thought better about it. He went back, dipped in the Jordan River seven times, and just like the prophet had said, he was cleansed of the disease. So what just happened there? Naaman rejected the temptation He passed the test, and he overcame the trial. Now, I'm absolutely convinced today that in the normal, healthy Christian life, all three of these things are regularly going on. Just change the name, change the place, change the time. 
all three of these things, trials, tests, and temptations, are regularly going on. But Satan wants to break us down, to weaken us by giving in to temptations that will begin to erode and even destroy our lives. I'll bet you're facing some now. I'll bet, because you live in the real world, I'll bet that there are temptations coming to you. They've come this week. Some of them have been long-time things you're battling. Others may be brand new enticements to sin. And if that's you, I want you to listen very carefully to what God's Word says to us today. Because it's very easy to rationalize when you're engaged in the temptation to say, yes, others have been hurt by this, but not me. I'm different. It won't be that way for me. And of course, those are the famous last words. I won't get hurt if I give in to this. And if that's the way you feel, again, I say you really need wisdom. I like Proverbs 4, verse 7. This is a verse I wish every Christian would memorize, commit to memory. Wisdom is supreme. Therefore, get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. Somebody said, every day is election day. God votes for you. Satan votes against you. You cast the deciding vote. So let's go on this journey now, and I invite you to write some words in if you'd like, if that's helpful to you to learn. And I want to give you a strategy of four things that we can do when we're just really being tempted by Satan. When temptations are coming at us, when we have these enticements to break God's laws and guidelines and do the wrong thing, to compromise, please be reminded the stakes are high. We've got to have a wartime mentality when this is happening. And I want to give you four things that I hope God will use in a practical way. Number one, if that's you, if you're engaged in this battle of temptation today, stop temptation before it starts. Now that may be misleading, so let me explain what I mean when I say stop it before it starts. I don't want to give you the impression that on this planet, living for Christ, you can ever completely eliminate or avoid temptations. Some Christians I've known have erroneously assumed that if I just became spiritual enough, temptation would never cross my path. I actually grew up singing a hymn that says, the world all about me now has no allure. And I always felt like such a hypocrite singing that. The world all about me now has no allure. Boy, it had an allure to me. How about you? There are all kinds of things in this world that allure me. They're attractive. They're enticing. And again, I, I don't know what the author of that was thinking, but the assumption seems to be that if I just grew enough, that I would be beyond the realm of temptation. I just don't believe that. I think that myth can, be, myth can be dispelled by just looking at the life of Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, we read the story about how he was baptized in the Jordan River. There was actually a voice from heaven 
saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I mean, does it get any better than that? You talk about the affirmation of the father. And then Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. He fasts and prays for 40 days. Can it be more spiritually intense than that? I doubt it. I mean, that's about as good as it gets. Are you going to get any more holy than that? And yet it was in the midst of that spiritual high that Satan comes to Jesus and begins to tempt him. That tells me that no matter how spiritually mature we become, no matter how much we cultivate godliness in our lives, and we should through disciplines that help us grow in grace, we're never going to be beyond temptation. A young man asked a priest, Father, when will I get to the place that the sins of the flesh no longer appeal to me? And the priest said, Son, I wouldn't trust myself until I'd been dead for at least three days. And I think that priest's advice is good. In fact, I want to take it even one step further before we quickly move on here. I believe you could make a valid logical argument scripturally and logically that the more you step up to the plate and grow in the grace of God, the more mature you become, the more of a difference maker you become for Jesus Christ, the more of a target you may be for the attack of the evil one. What do you think? The Bible says Satan is a strategist. He has methodia. That word is translated schemes or wiles. He's going to go after the generals. He's going to go after the lieutenants, the people who are making a difference, the people who are more strategic in the battle. He's also going to go after the privates and the people in the foxholes and the people on the front lines of battle. He wants to take us out. I'm just saying, be aware that if you step up and say, God, use my life, he will. But the battle may actually intensify. So how do we stop temptation before it starts? I would just call this the principle of preclusion. If you can preclude some temptations, why not do it? If Ben and Jerry's is your besetting sin, why go down that aisle in the grocery store? Find another strategy. If pornography is that enticement that just gets you, why not choose an appropriate accountability system and just try to preclude it before it even can start? If you notice that your worst temptations come when you're just, quote, dog tired and exhausted, then take note of that. And when you notice yourself getting exhausted, try to get the appropriate rest. I know it's probably harder than it sounds, right? But I'm convinced that we walk right into temptation more often than not, even though we could have avoided it. On our staff, for all of our married staff at Grace, we have something we call Keener's Commandments. I won't go through them all. But we've had these ever since the church started, and I believe God has honored them to serve us well. And what that means for those of us who are married, that, for instance, I wouldn't ride with 
a woman who's not a family member, my wife, my daughter, someone in my family, direct family, in a car alone. I wouldn't go have lunch alone. I wouldn't have a meeting with a woman behind closed doors where no one could see into that room and what was going on there. It's those kind of accountability measures. We're trying to preclude temptation before it even starts. And I would say that that's an awfully good principle for every married person to practice. And some of those principles that we use in Keener's Commandments would apply very well to single people as well. The second principle I would share today is that you move yourself out of immediate danger. If you've done all you can do to preclude some temptations, you'll never preclude them all, trust me. You'll never get beyond temptation. But once you've done some reasonable things, just some, and by the way, I'm convinced that myself and so many of us on staff have stayed out of moral trouble largely because of this preclusion principle. We just try to stay out of situations. But once you've done that, then if you do find yourself in a situation, move yourself out of immediate danger. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Therefore, my dear friends, catch this word now, flee from idolatry. You see this fleeing principle all throughout Scripture. Get out of there. Leave. Don't leave a forwarding address. Remove yourself from the situation. I heard of an overweight preacher who announced to his staff that he was going to go on a serious diet. But the next morning, this overweight pastor showed up with a big box of donuts, and two or three of them had already been eaten. And his assistant said, I thought you were going to go on a diet. He said, well, I was, but it wasn't God's will. She said, what do you mean? He said, well, I just, you know, when I drive into work, I drive right past the bakery there. And I just prayed this morning, I was in a real spiritual mood, Lord, if you don't want me to eat any donuts today, then don't let there be a parking place there at the bakery. He said, sure enough, the eighth time around the block, there was a place (laughs) right there in the front. Now, that guy is not fleeing. What do we mean by fleeing temptation? Well, the classic illustration of this that comes to the minds of most Bible students, if they've studied Scripture much, would be in the life of Joseph, Genesis chapter 39. It records how as he was tempted by a guy named Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, as he was tempted by her to sexual immorality, Joseph practiced this principle. the, The Hebrew says he literally fled to the street. He got out of the situation. He literally moved his body out of the situation. It's kind of hard to yield to temptation when you're running in the opposite direction. Paul again writes in 1 Corinthians, flee from sexual immorality. There it is again. Flee, run, remove yourself, get out of there. 
All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. And then Paul gives this awesome principle about us being the temple of the Holy Spirit, not some building, but us, our very bodies. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. I fully believe that if we just took these first two principles seriously, preclude it when we can, and when we find ourselves in danger to literally move, to quickly flee and get it out. Why do you have to flee? Because if you stop to reason about it, you're dead every time. Reason will do you no good when you're in that immediate sort of danger. So move out. I'm convinced that if we practice these, 90% of the temptations that tend to destroy our lives we actually would overcome them. But there's a third principle here. Accept accountability to trusted Christian friends. The British steamer, the Titanic, was considered by experts unsinkable, but you know the story. The unsinkable sunk. April the 14th, 1912, 1,500 people Perished. And again, if you know the story, you know that the problem was not what could be seen. The problem was that this mountain of ice, this glacier, the part that was beneath the water, the 90% of the mass of that glacier that was beneath water level, cut a 300-foot gash along the side of the Titanic. I think that's a metaphor for our lives, isn't it? What we show people, what's above the waterline is often beautiful. I mean, just look at Facebook. You would think people are living the life, wouldn't you? The pictures are perfect. There are smiles. It's like a continuous party. Life is cruising. But the real story, the 90% beneath the waterline is often very, very different. God says, look, don't get so fixated on just trying to put your best foot forward with people. If you want to really be victorious, focus on what's below the waterline. Howard Hendricks, the late Howard Hendricks, who taught for so many years at Dallas Theological Seminary, continuously worked with men. One of his life goals was to try to see men be godly husbands, godly fathers, and great friends and make a difference in their communities. And he reports on a survey of ministers who had career-ending moral failures. And it's shocking what all of them had in common. Career-ending moral failures, it wasn't all the same, it wasn't all sexual sin, but, but what they all had in common was this, number four things. These fallen ministers stopped having a daily quiet time, they'd become too busy to have devotions. Second, there was no person in their life to whom they were personally 
accountable, people who knew the real them, the part below the waterline. Third, they had counseled women alone on a regular basis without the accountability of the open window. And fourth, and finally, in every single case, they thought it could never happen to them. In every single case, the attitude was, it can never happen to me. I shudder when I read this warning in Scripture. So, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So, I simply ask you, do you have some accountability? Let me ask you, is there anyone in your life, or maybe hopefully more than one persons, who doesn't just know what Facebook friends might know, what just people who see what you post know, but are there people in your life who know what's below the waterline? That's the important part. In the early years of Grace Fellowship, I was in an accountability group for seven years. I'm thankful today that I still have great brothers in my life, and there are people in my life who know the part below the waterline where there's open and vulnerable sharing, including in that group some other local ministers in our area where we get together and just share very, very vulnerable. We take risk with each other and share not just the good parts, but the warts and all in our lives. That's awesome. What a gift that is. But for a seven-year period, I met with a group of men in a local diner. We always got a back corner, and we met before people were showing up much, so we had some privacy back there. For seven solid years, we met, and we asked these questions of one another every Thursday morning. Let me read them to you. We got them from a book by Chuck Swindoll called Rise and Shine. This was the list that we looked in each other's eyes and asked and answered every single week. Have you been with a woman this week in such a way that was inappropriate or could have looked to others that you were using poor judgment? Have you been completely above reproach in all your financial dealings this week? In other words, you've been a good steward of your money. Third, have you exposed yourself to any explicit material this week? Fourth, have you spent time daily in prayer and in the scriptures this week? Daily. And we report on that, report about our quiet times and our times with God. Five, have you fulfilled the mandate of your calling this week? Now, most of these men were businessmen. So the mandate of your calling didn't mean have you been faithful preaching, have you done your ministerial. The, the mandate of your calling was whatever God's called you to, have you been faithful with that? Have you been the best business person that you could possibly be? Six, have you taken time off to be with your family this week? And number seven, have you just lied to me? And we looked in each other's eyes and went around in this small group of accountability partners and asked those. And I want to tell you, because I knew that I had to answer those questions with my brothers in Christ on Thursday morning, I believe that it saved me from possibly succumbing to a number of temptations that came my way. As iron sharpens iron, so one man or woman sharpens another. And finally today, consider this principle. If you're in the battle, and we all are, remind yourself of what yielding to temptation 
will cost you. I used to go through an exercise where I would literally begin to write down what yielding to temptation would cost. And I would just start with my family. I'd start with Debbie, what it would do to our relationship, my children, my closest friends, my colleagues on the staff team, and on and on and on. James chapter 1 talks about the progression of sin. It talks about in verse 14, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Max Lucado wrote, Satan aims his dart at your weakest point, and bullseye, you lose your temper, you lust, you fall, you take a drag, you buy the drink, you kiss the woman, you follow the crowd, you rationalize it and say yes. You sign your name, you forget who you are, you walk into her room, you look in the window, you break your promise, you buy the magazine, you lie, you covet, you stamp your feet and demand your way and you deny your master. Way back in 1987, there was a movie that was incredibly popular when it first came out. I mean, people were just stunned and riveted to this movie. And it was about a whirlwind affair where a guy has an affair with a woman. And then when he tries to end the relationship, she threatens to destroy his job and his family. And he just can't get away from her. And the title chosen was... Fatal attraction. And how appropriate, because there's a sense in which all sin is fatal. Remind yourself of what it would cost you to yield to temptation, because we truly reap what we sow. Deb and I just returned recently from our favorite conference. We've been at a conference in California Praise God. Don't you love to go to California in February? Praise God. Oh, it's such good timing, let me tell you. And this conference, we love it for many reasons, but one is because it's always in a warmer place than the Capital District. And it's always, just about always, in February. So it is awesome. But it's with a group of pastors and their wives, and these are pastors of larger churches. I think the largest one represented this week was 32,000 regular attendees. That's a church in Arizona. And right down to churches of 1,000 attendees. And it is rich. We cry together. We do a lot more laughing together. Just have a blast. Share meals together. Lots of round table discussions around small tables. And we listen to some speakers and so on. And I believe that this week was the best one Deb and I have ever been to. It's just, we have come back with our souls really enriched. But we'll never forget Thursday morning as the whole conference was wrapping up, Dave Stone, uh, current senior pastor of Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, a church that we have sent many leadership teams down to visit and try to learn from this great church. Dave Stone is going to be resigning sometime this year. He hasn't given an exact date yet on that. And passed the baton to a younger leader. And in his closing address, which was very, very emotional for many of us, 
because we've known the story of that church. He simply highlighted the fact that if you had just, <coughs> he was talking about protecting your legacy. And he said, just a year ago, if you had asked, who are the two most well-known and influential Christian leaders in the Chicago area, the names would have been Bill Hybels and James McDonald. And he said, just one year later, both of them have been sidelined because of how they responded to trials, tests, and or temptations. And it gave us all a moment to pause and think, how are we doing navigating these things in our lives? And I think it ought to make all of us ask that question. Because God wants to do so much in and through us. But the battle is real. And we need a wartime mentality. And so I simply leave you with this and then we'll pray. When it comes to sin, the pain of the harvest always exceeds the pleasure of the sowing. Please remember that, friends. When it comes to sin, the pain of the harvest always exceeds the pleasure of the sowing. Father, would you help emblazon that truth on our hearts and minds today? This is a sobering topic. It's one that grabs our attention because we all know what the battle feels like as it rages day by day. Help us to be so in love with you and so committed to your glory and to representing you well that we would take all diligence, all diligence to battle temptation and to be victorious. You are so good to us, Lord. Thank you for your steadfast faithfulness in our lives and thank you for giving us all that we need pertaining to life and godliness so that we can live victoriously for you. And may all of us leave this place today, some minutes from now, with exuberance and joy and confidence that we are victorious in you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.